Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Desk, chair, whiteboard, backpack. The basic trappings of school life vary hardly at all from country to country around the world. But in only one country is it normal to ask whether all these familiar items of childhood can be made bulletproof. In only one country are schools beginning to be designed with curved walls to disrupt the line of sight of an attacker. In only one country does the first day of school routinely involve children learning where to hide while knowing that hiding may not be enough. Nineteen children and two teachers were shot dead in an elementary school this week. This only happens in America. The reason why is simple. It's because Americans have more guns. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, why can't America stop mass gun violence? The horror at Uvalde in Texas shows American exceptionalism at its worst. But part of the tragedy is that the event itself is not exceptional. In the 10 years since another gunman opened fire at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, killing 26, there have been more than 900 other shootings in schools across the country. And this latest atrocity comes just a week after 10 people were murdered in a supermarket in Buffalo for the color of their skin. What will it take for America to solve its gun problem? Why does America continue to accept this terrible cost? With me to discuss this are Idris Kaloon and Charlotte Howard. Charlotte, Idris, on last week's podcast, we were discussing briefly the shooting in Buffalo, and we said to each other that We'd probably have to be back before too long talking about guns in America. And here we are again. Charlotte, what's the reaction been like in New York? Well, in New York, of course, there was the Buffalo shooting last week. And New York has much stronger gun laws than much of the rest of the country. But you see the governor, Kathy Hochul, looking to strengthen them still further. But one of the things that you see in New York and elsewhere is this real tension between how you would design gun laws in an ideal society and how you might try to advance some kind of gun restrictions given the political realities of America's Congress. So I think in this episode, I'm looking forward to talking with you and Idris about really getting into the details of Americans' opinions on this, the different actors who have shaped the gun debate in America and how how they've changed just in the past decade, which is pretty remarkable, and how they might change further. And Idris, you're sitting across the table from me here. Another thing we'll talk about a bit, I think, is the international comparisons, which I think is something that occasionally gets a bit lost in the American debate. America is such an outlier here. And I think this may be the single subject 
that foreigners find most baffling about the USA as it is at the moment? Yeah, just today I saw that a criminologist named Jason Silva had compiled a list of mass shootings by country from 1998 until 2019. And he found that America had had 101 over those 20 years. And the next closest country, which was France, had had eight. And the UK had had one. And most developed countries are in the one to two range over 20 years. You know, this is just a sadly recurrent phenomenon in America. I remember the last time I felt some degree of optimism that things might change was after Newtown when I was still in college and when there seemed like there was some momentum towards policy change. And of course, I think we'll discuss it later, but that failed. It's hard to sort of muster up the same degree of optimism after Parkland uh, a few years ago and even after this, given that we are where we are and it's been stuck that way for quite a long time. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's the thing we're going to try and explain today, how this problem can be so unique to America and so serious, and yet the legislature on the federal level and also in states in many cases finds it apparently impossible to solve the problem or lessen the death toll from gun violence in America. One aspect of that that interests me is the way that American gun culture has changed over the past 20 or 30 years. And to get a bit of an insight into that, I spoke to Ryan Bussey, who used to be a senior executive at Kimber, which is a gun maker. He worked in the gun industry for about 20 years, but he left because he felt that the industry was changing around him in ways that he was deeply uncomfortable with. He's written a very good book about his experience called Gunfight, and he's now policy advisor to Gabby Giffords, a congresswoman who herself was shot and who heads up an organization that's working to end gun violence in America. I grew up on a ranch, a rural ranch, with and firearms were a very important part of my upbringing. We worked very hard on that ranch, and there wasn't a lot of time to have fun. And when we did have fun with my brother or my family, quite often, it involved firearms hunting or shooting together. Um, responsibility was always demanded, but that is how um, the culture of guns becomes intertwined in so many Americans' lives. After college, I got what I thought was a dream job in the firearms industry. It represented something that I thought would be fun. And for the first few years of my career, it was fun because the same responsibility that I had been taught and that so many Americans have been taught, that responsibility that must balance out those freedoms was evident in the first few years of the firearms industry in the mid early nineties. But over time, I saw that stripped away in favor of this growing focus on greed and radicalization as a way to win elections, radicalize a populace, and then obviously make money too. And so I spent the remaining you know, almost 20 years of my career trying to hold true to those early principles of my life, gun ownership that I believe is defensible, and I'm still a gun owner, a proud gun owner, and trying to stay outside of or fight against this new radicalization and growing proliferation of tactical culture and tactical guns. And in the wake of the shooting in Texas, like in the wake of the shooting in Buffalo last week, there's a predictable political reaction, right? Liberals, Democrats call for gun control, um, call for closing various loopholes that exist in legislation, more background checks, etc. And Republicans and conservatives say, you know, this is not the time to be talking about gun control we need to have a conversation about mental health. I'm just wondering, you know, having spent so much time 
looking at these arguments, how you understand that counter-argument and, frankly, how sincere it is? First off, a complex democracy never solves anything. A healthy, complex democracy simply decides to make things better and stop making things worse. And I don't think there are easy answers. You know, red flag laws aren't going to solve this. Gun laws alone aren't going to solve this. I tend to walk between all these things and say, let's stop talking about absolutes on either side and let's start agreeing on some things that will make this better. And so oftentimes I hear folks like Ted Cruz say things like, why would you want to institute this gun law? It won't solve everything. It wouldn't have stopped X or, or Y or, well, perhaps, but it may, it may slow down the next one. I think, you know, that, that, that there's just no getting away from the fact that cranking up the toxicity and the anger and the conspiracy in a populace, especially of many young, white, disenfranchised kids, and then dumping millions and millions of tactical guns and various forms of tactical gear, and then pouring even more firearms marketing, incendiary sort of messages about masculinity and patriotism and fear. We can look away from that if we wish, but only an idiot would look away from that and think that a room where you've been throwing lighted matches and gasoline for years isn't about to explode. I, I, I spoke to members of the U.S. Senate and I warned them that Kyle Rittenhouse was not an anomaly. Kyle Rittenhouse was a warning. I said last 10 day, 12 days ago that Buffalo wasn't an anomaly. It was a warning. And I say now that Uvalde is not an anomaly. It's a warning for what is to come. Um, and and I, th I think we need a combination of all of the things, none of them perfect or absolute. We just have to start making it better. One of the most depressing statistics in public opinion in America at the moment, to my mind, is that if you look at support for gun control over time, it's reduced from where it was 10 years ago, even though gun laws are looser now than they've been well, for, for decades, for more than decades, which suggests that people like you and me arguing for gun control are just not being that persuasive. So, so seems like we're going about, I'm not it, sure about, going about it the wrong way. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I, I, don't, I don't think the, the failure or the drop-off in polling is due to that. I think the, the drop-off in polling is due to the simple fact that if you stir a society into enough fear, if you threaten enough people, if you crank enough racial animus into it, if you have enough riots and counter-riots and African-Americans attacked in grocery stores and Hispanic Americans attacked in El Paso, eventually all segments of society will want to arm themselves more against the offending segments of society. And my experience is that the growing firearms ownership is strictly a basal reaction of humans to protect themselves against a society that is coming unhinged because of firearms violence. If you think of yourself now, put yourself in the shoes of an African-American family in Buffalo. Are you more or less likely today to purchase a firearm to protect yourself than you were 13 days ago? Probably, sadly, probably more. I would be. And so this is how 
a society comes to <laughs> cast disdain at gun control, not because it doesn't believe in the policy. It just believes that the policy is not protecting it. Charlotte, it's a pretty downbeat diagnosis from Ryan, though I think an accurate one. Before we get into what public opinion says on guns in America, I just wanted to pause on gun culture. I grew up in the countryside in Britain. Most of my neighbours had rifles and shotguns, went hunting. American gun culture, to me, is deeply weird and foreign. I mean, after I spoke to Ryan, I spent a bit of time looking on websites selling AR-15s and came across one which called itself the Urban Super Sniper. And this is little extract from its marketing pitch. There are times when extreme accuracy and rapid follow-up shots are the most important criteria when selecting a rifle. These were the primary objectives of the engineers at Wilson Combat when they designed the SS-15 Urban Super Sniper. This stuff is all over the place if you go to gun shops in America. There's tactical gear for sale. It just seems such a long way away from what the founders might have been thinking about when when they wrote the Second Amendment, and frankly, so far away from the concept of gun ownership 10, 15 years ago. What are your observations about how and why that culture has evolved? Because it seems so often that these shooters come out of it. You know, they're young men dressed up as soldiers who then go on these rampages. Yeah. Just to stay for a second on your comparison with gun ownership in Britain, gun ownership in America is... Is, is really striking in its concentration. The rate is more than double that of Yemen, which is the next closest country. And the other countries on the list in the top five, the gun ownership per person, are countries like Montenegro, Uruguay. Britain doesn't come even close. So it really is a distinctly American phenomenon to have this many guns and have this kind of guns. Uh, America has a higher homicide rate than Britain, Germany, or France by a large factor. And uh, guns account for a higher share of those murders. So this is distinct. I mean, one of the things in the past decade that I have found most notable, I and many others have found noticeable, is this shift away from guns as uh, something that you use to go hunting to the type of ownership or almost this romantic vision of an American individual against the world. Uh, you saw this with the McCloskeys, who are the, the couple that pointed guns at Black Lives Matter protesters in 2020. Those people got a speaking role during the Republican convention. Eventually, they were convicted of fourth-degree assault and harassment charges, but those are just misdemeanors, so they could keep their weapons. They can keep their weapons after having been convicted of that. And Mark McCloskey, after the ruling, said he'd do it again. So I think that's an indication, one of many, of the way in which guns have become central, not just to being able to hunt, but this idea that guns are really crucial to defending individual Americans against a broader force, be it protesters, be it invaders, be it potentially the government. You hear all kinds of rhetoric around um, the various forces against which individual Americans would need to protect themselves, but it's a really strong part of the culture. One additional reason that I'm pessimistic is that a lot of the even mild reforms that we're talking about are regarding the sale of future guns. And we know that there are 400 million guns already in America, more than one per person. I don't think that we're really going to do anything retroactively like Australia did. And so I think that that means that 
you might be able to stanch the flow a bit, even though I don't think that is going to happen. But uh, the stock of existing guns is so large that I, I think that, you know, this sort of epidemic of gun violence is going to be one that's just going to continue growing, escalating. So I think everyone in America agrees that mass shootings are bad, almost everyone anyway. But the willingness to do anything about it is very limited. And it seems, to me at least, looking at opinion polling, that support for gun control, measures to make it harder for people to buy guns, and to limit the sizes of magazines, other things like that, seems to have fallen, right? So if anything, opinion is moving in the, in the wrong direction, to my mind, on this. But I'm wondering if my read of that is too simplistic. I mean, polling questions, the answers you get are very, very sensitive to how you ask the questions. How do you guys both see the evidence on that? What do Americans actually want here? The Gallup poll showed a pretty sizable drop, right? So a few years ago, 67% of Americans said that they wanted stricter gun laws. And today, or the last that they polled, it was only 52%. So it's dropped a bit in the last few years. But if you poll people on specific measures, like, do you think there should be a universal background check before anyone purchases a gun? Close to 90% of people will agree yes. If you look at other measures, like, do you think that guns should be stored in safes, which half of guns are not in America, uh, again, you'll find a majority that agree. Do you think that there should be closing of the gun show loophole in which you can privately sell a gun to someone without doing a background check? Most people agree. So the kinds of things that are being debated, I think there's a fair degree of, of majoritarian consensus around those issues. I think that when we ask the sort of broader question of how do you feel about gun laws writ large, I think part of the demise or, or, or part of the narrowing there may be a result of just the the tribalistic impulse, right, where Republicans see that as a question on whether or not they think crime is an issue or violence is an issue or, you know, whether or not they believe in constitutional freedom. And so it becomes a a sort of reflection of their pre-existing political beliefs rather than a sort of deeply thought out policy position necessarily. It's funny because you see that across other policy areas too. Like if you look at the polling around Obamacare at the time, people hated the idea of Obamacare, but then you'd get into specific provisions. And actually, there's quite a lot of support for coverage for pre-existing conditions and so forth. So it strikes me that this is one of many areas and perhaps the most extreme area where there's a big gap in messaging. And Democrats who support stricter gun laws for whatever reason even despite these mass tragedies, have not been able to get their point across because of this obfuscation, as you described it, Idris, where it becomes kind of a bigger emotional issue that's a proxy for something else, as much as a specific referendum on on individual policies. But we can get into more of the way in which um, the gun lobby has been able to perpetuate that. I think guns are also an object lesson in how, in a democracy, a well-organized highly motivated extreme minority can be incredibly effective at blocking any reform. And also, of course, we're contractually obliged to point out that even if you can get 55% or 60% of support in public opinion for some measures in America, that is nowhere near enough to get you past the Senate and past a filibuster. Okay, in a moment, we'll go back to the last time a president was able to pass lasting federal gun control legislation and look at what the cost of that was. Let's go back now to that hour last night. First, Senator Kennedy in victory, and then the voice of reporter West, as our cameras show the panic that gripped the scene. 
On the 5th of June, 1968, Senator Robert Kennedy was celebrating his victory in the California Democratic presidential primary. But as he walked off stage, he was shot. The panic of the crowd was caught live on film and shook the nation right up to the White House. My fellow citizens, I speak to you this evening not only as your president, but as a fellow American that's shocked and dismayed as you are by the attempt on Senator Kennedy's life. President Johnson had proposed gun control legislation every year since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963. And every year, it had got nowhere. But just a few weeks earlier, Martin Luther King had been assassinated in Memphis. Huge protests had erupted in more than 100 cities. The country was in shock. Violent crime was surging. Gun sales soared. As RFK lay dying, Johnson saw an opportunity. But those awful events give us ample warning that in a climate of extremism, of disrespect for law, of contempt for the rights of others, violence may bring down the very best among us. And a nation that tolerates violence in any form cannot expect to be able to confine it to just minor outbursts. My fellow citizens, we cannot. We just must not tolerate the sway of violent men among us. Johnson's bill would ban the purchase of guns through the post from out of state, what he termed mail-order murder, like the rifle Lee Harvey Oswald bought for $19.95 from an ad in an NRA magazine and used to kill President Kennedy. It would ban the sale of guns to minors and the mentally ill and curb the import of cheap handguns from overseas, known as Saturday night specials. Most ambitious of all, it would create a national register and licensing system. That will not in itself end the violence. But reason and experience tell us that it will slow it down, that it will spare many innocent lives. Let us purge the hostility from our hearts and let us practice moderation with our tongues. Let us begin in the aftermath of this great tragedy to find a way to reverence life. He told an aide, we only have two weeks, maybe only ten days, before the gun lobby gets organized. The National Rifle Association has fought long and hard for practical and for sensible gun laws aimed in the right direction. For much of its history until then, the NRA had been instrumental in bringing in gun regulation. It helped President Roosevelt draft the country's first federal gun control laws in the 1930s. But Johnson's proposals went too far for the NRA's new president, Harold Glasson. We would protect the rights of millions of Americans who are perfectly capable of using a gun safely and who prefer to exercise their right to own one. 200 million guns did not strike down Senator Kennedy. Only one did. In letters to its 900,000 members and in its lobbying on the Hill, the organization argued that Johnson's bill put the Second Amendment itself in jeopardy. In all honesty, gentlemen, we have no more reason to be outraged at 200 million guns, if there are that many in this country, than we do at 200 million Americans. And I call to your attention that the bills introduced in the last two or three days in Congress are aimed directly at the gun. Not at the misuse of the gun, but at the gun itself. The pressure worked. 
the plan for national licensing and registration stood no chance. It was voted down in both the House and the Senate before the gun lobby announced that this was now legislation they could live with. This bill, as big as this bill is, still falls short because we just could not get the Congress to carry out the requests we made of them. President Johnson signed the Gun Control Act into law in October 1968. It was the first such major legislation for 30 years. But his words were full of frustration. The voices that blocked these safeguards were not the voices of an aroused nation. They were the voices of a powerful lobby, a gun lobby, that has prevailed for the moment in an election year. It's a frustration that has echoed in the words of every proponent of serious gun regulation in America since. Because the Gun Control Act was also a turning point for the NRA. From the 1970s, it stepped up its lobbying to protect and liberalise gun ownership, becoming a formidable political force in its own right, and resisting all efforts to regulate as existential threats to the right to bear arms. And since then, no national tragedy, not Columbine, not Sandy Hook, not Parkland, has been enough to sway Congress to pass lasting, binding legislation to prevent mass gun violence. Can this time be any different? So now we must complete the task which this long-needed legislation begins. We have come a long way. We have made much progress, but not near enough. Idris, the last time the Senate got close to passing some gun control legislation was in 2013 after the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. And that was the Manchin-Toomey bill. Both those men are still in the Senate. That bill in 2013 attracted the support of a majority of senators. The vote was 54-46. But that, of course, is not enough to get you over the threshold for the filibuster, which is 60 votes. And so it failed. There's been some talk about resurrecting that bill now. Is there any chance at all of that happening? I think right now, even a Manchin-Toomey proposal, which was fairly modest, it established a universal background check system, would have required registration of new gun purchases, but explicitly banned a gun registry. Um, even that wouldn't pass today. And I remember when that happened, um, I was still in college and I was really affected by Newtown, so I'd been watching pretty closely. But And what I remember from that is that they got 54 votes, but there were four Democratic votes against the bill from senators in conservative states like North Dakota and Alaska. And that really kept them from, I think, I, I think that really stalled the bill's momentum. It, it you know, precluded the possibility of getting another Republican to join that would have gotten the bill to 60. It would have, I think, really changed things. Ever since that moment, I've been down on the idea of a grand bipartisan compromise that can emerge a, a Senate with a filibuster. And I certainly have less optimism today. I think at this point, there's just too much data pointing in the other direction. I agree with you, Idris. So Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, after a shooting at a Walmart in his state, according to his official press release, said that he would, quote, generate ideas to combat the rise of extremist groups and hateful ideologies, keep guns out of the hands of deranged individuals, and combat domestic terrorism in Texas, end quote. 
And he talked about action and results. And instead, what we have is a passage in 2021 to ease rules on who can carry a gun without a permit in Texas. So I think that both on the national and the state level, there's just too much evidence pointing to inaction to think that something might be different this time. And often the failure of this kind of legislation is ascribed to the power of the NRA. But it's also the case that the NRA is in a mess at the moment, right? It went bankrupt last year. It's an incredibly radical organization that is quite some distance in its opinions away from, I think, where the majority of gun owners are. I don't quite understand how the NRA can both apparently have so much power as a lobby group and be so dysfunctional. I mean, is it just that the NRA effectively has veto power in Republican primaries? So anybody who wants to stand for any Republican office basically has to please the NRA. And so therefore, a group that is in disarray can still have a lot of sway and effectively kind of veto power over this issue? Or or is it something else? I find them to be endlessly fascinating, the degree to which you can be both dysfunctional and extremely successful. There was a book that came out last year by a reporter named Tim Mack, who spoke about inside the NRA after Sandy Hook, there was this kind of doubling down on being more conservative, advocating, for instance, that the response to school shootings should be more guns in schools, which, by the way, is just empirically proven to be a bad idea. There were researchers at Stanford that looked at right-to-carry laws and found that in the 10 years after adoption, when you have more guns, there is a higher increase in violent crime by 13 to 15%. But anyway, the NRA doubled down on this approach to really go for people who felt passionate about gun control, not to try to win over moderate Dems, but to look at the conservatives themselves. And they've been really successful at this. I mean, during the Obama years, during which the Sandy Hook uh, shooting, of course, took place, they raised a ton of money because there was a feeling like gun rights might be under threat. During the Trump years, they were not as successful in fundraising. I'm curious to see what happens now in the wake of, of these two mass shootings that we've seen just in the past two weeks. I mean, even if you remember NRA TV, the sort of media outlet that they spun up, which was just completely bought into the culture war and, and grievance sort of methodology. That, I think, was a precursor to the kinds of really far-right conservative media that we see today. And in fact, they've, they've exported a few of their stars from that network to, to other places as well. So I, I do think that that analogy is really quite important to think through. But I think that this also reinforces the idea that it's not that the NRA is sort of good at manipulating people. It's that they might have tapped into an undercurrent that a lot of Americans do actually feel. I think that's right. They've also done, as you said, since Sandy Hook, an extraordinary job of supplying people with arguments. I mean, we wrote a story after the Parkland shooting about how in 2013, I think, the NRA put out a report suggesting how you could design schools to make them harder for shooters to go in and kill children. And a lot of those talking points still come up every time there's a mass shooting. So you had people like Ken Paxton and Ted Cruz talking about how schools have too many doors. But it's not just that. The piece that we wrote uh, around this NRA report suggested that schools build sort of prison-style fences around them, that they ban sort of greenery and trees outside the schools because intruders might hide in them. And that if possible, no windows is a good thing for schools. Or if you have to have windows, only have small ones with ballistic protective glass in there. So any solution, but not fewer guns. I, I mean, in this case, right, there there was 
an armed guard right in front of the school, and that didn't stop this from happening. In the case of Parkland, there was one too, empirically. It's just not the case that, you know, arming everyone to the teeth is going to result in in fewer deaths. I mean, the the other thing is that people who die in in mass shootings or active shooter situations constitute a really small portion of the number of people who die every year because of guns. There are 20,000 gun homicides a year in America, and our attention is always focused to them whenever there are these sort of horrifying spectacles. But this is just a a tiny sliver of of the amount of of damage that is caused. Um, For one... I mean, I, there was a study from Stanford that I think about a lot, which shows there have been hundreds of school shootings, not all of them nearly so catastrophic, but hundreds of school shootings in the last few decades, such that they found that there were 240,000 kids who had attended a school in which there was a shooting, and they followed them over their lifetime, and they found, you know, as you'd expect, hugely negative consequences to their mental health, their life outcomes, you know, substantially higher rate of antidepressant use and this sort of thing. And that's just with school shootings, which, again, is kind of rare. But you think about the fact that there are kids in neighborhoods across the country who are exposed to, like, gun violence continuously. And, if, you know, the, the mental health consequences of that, the behavioral consequences, financial life outcomes, just happiness, all of those things are just magnified several times over because of this. Well, even if Congress doesn't seem to be about to leap into action on this, I think it's important not to lose hope and to realize that progress can sometimes just be really, really slow. And it's important to look at the evidence on what kind of measures, either at the federal level or on the state level, could help to make America safer. So we'll be back in a moment to do that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Alexandra Switch-Bass is our correspondent in Texas, and she's been writing about guns for The Economist for a long time. I wanted her view on how the shooting will or won't change Texas's peculiar gun culture. I think it's important to point out that Uvalde could have happened anywhere and school shootings have happened across the country. But the politics in Texas around guns add to the indignity of all of this. After the two mass shootings in 2018, you saw top government officials, including Texas's governor, Greg Abbott, promised to look into proposals to make schools safer. In reaction, ultimately, we saw a loosening of gun laws with permitless carry into law, which allows anyone 21 and over to carry a gun around without a permit or training. Uh, Governor Abbott did a press conference in which he argued with the narrative that he had not acted after the last spate of mass shootings um, and pointed out that he, the state had invested $100 million to harden public schools 
schools. Of course, anyone who follows Texas's budget would know that that's about $20 per public school student. It's done very little. Meanwhile, the state is spending about $4 billion on the border. But I would add that in some ways, what Texas does and what states do is much less consequential than what the federal government does because states that have even extremely strict gun laws have high rates of gun violence. And that's because guns flow from states with fewer restrictions to states with more restrictions. There's a whole arms trade within America. People talk about an iron pipeline. And so unless there's really strong federal action, it's unlikely to make a difference in Texas or elsewhere. Nevertheless, let's discuss some of those reforms. If you look at the various policy prescriptions that people like us like to propose, so universal background checks, um, red flag laws, granted, there's no single measure that's going to fix the problem, right? But what does the evidence say might work, at least on the margins? I think there will be parallel debates. One will be a broader debate about gun laws and putting in more gun controls. And one will be about this particular school shooting and what might have changed outcomes. As it relates to Uvalde, we still don't know a lot about motive uh, or even that many details about the crime, except that he was an 18-year-old who bought two assault rifles within days soon after he turned 18. And so one reform that may or may not be discussed in Texas will be whether or not the age to purchase a gun should be 21 and not 18. And Florida, in the wake of the Parkland shooting several years ago, chose to raise the age to 21. The silver bullet if you will, would be universal background checks. Those are politically improbable and impalatable, especially to Republicans, but those would make the largest difference. Uh, Red flag laws are being pushed by Republicans, so that would give law enforcement greater authority to take away guns from people who have made threats um, or have a perceived mental health risk and risk to violence. And then, of course, there's the question of whether to prolong waiting periods. Currently, it's three days that the FBI has to investigate, and that is an extremely short amount of time and is part of the reason we saw a really horrible shooting in Charleston in 2015 because the FBI did not act quickly enough. So prolonging those waiting times could be an effective measure. Of course, a basic one would be funding the government agency that oversees guns, the Bureau for Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. The ATF has had only one permanent director in 15 years, uh, and it has been starved of resources. But the National Rifle Association and gun lobbies fight even those sensible measures. And talking about federal action, Alexandra, we're awaiting a Supreme Court judgment, which seems quite likely is going to make it easier for people to carry handguns in states where currently they're not allowed to. That's right. There's a more than 100-year-old law in New York that requires someone to apply for a permit to carry a handgun in public and show proper cause. The Supreme Court is set to rule in June or early July. This is potentially very consequential because other states, including California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, have similar laws on the books. It's worth noting that this is going to be one of the most consequential decisions on guns. We haven't had one since 2008 in a decision that ruled that you could keep a gun inside a home. And so 
many eyes will be on New York um, and the potential loosening of restrictions at the same time that people will be watching what's debated uh, on the Capitol and whether we're likely to see potential new restrictions come into play. Last question. You're a parent in Texas. You must have had lots of conversations with fellow parents who have children in schools. What are they saying to each other? Something that I've been thinking a lot about is how so much political capital has been spent in states around the country this year discussing how to make students feel safer in classrooms. And uh, Republicans have suggested that that will come by limiting discussions about sex and sexuality and race. Um, And I have to just remark on the irony um, of the lack of action on gun control making students feel so profoundly unsafe in classrooms. Even at my two-year-old's preschool, they're doing active shooter drills um, to prepare for the possibility of horror. So students are being introduced to this so early, and it is on every family's mind in Texas and certainly in the nation this week. Okay, Charlotte, we're going to foreground this conversation by saying we don't expect these things to pass Congress anytime soon. But what measures do you think might make a difference of all the various things that are being discussed? I think going back to the conversation that you had with Ryan Bussey at the beginning, that there's not one thing, right? It's a collection of things that would hopefully diminish the frequency of these horrific events. In New York, they have what's called a red flag law. So that let's a state bar an individual who may pose a danger to themselves or to other people. Those people can't own a gun. New York has this law, and yet the Buffalo shooter was able to obtain a gun despite having made threats of violence earlier. And it kind of exposes one shortcoming of this law, which is that you do need to have someone seek to invoke this ban, whether it's police or family member or a school administrator. There has to be an active petitioning to have that individual be barred. And so I think that there's a double challenge, one of passing the laws, and then the second is of implementing them in a way that they're effective. You know, Chuck Schumer, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, said that he would force a vote on gun control on the Senate floor, but uh, that's almost certain to fail. In the face of continued gridlock in Congress, though, what we do see is that the biggest avenue for change on, on gun policies is the Supreme Court. You know, over the last really 15 years, they have really taken an expansionist view of what the Second Amendment means, which is odd given their what we expect the rationale will be on the abortion decision where they're suspect of the creation of new rights. Uh, somehow the Second Amendment seems to be interpreted to be um, ever, ever larger. You know, the text of the actual amendment, which I always think is so inherently limiting, right? It says, uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Up until D.C. versus Heller, which was decided in 2008, you know, it was not thought that that meant that there was an individual right to bear arms. And now that the Supreme Court is considering this case in New York, depending on on how it is decided, there might be an individual right to bear arms in public without a permit. I think it's reasonable to say in the abortion case, the Constitution has nothing really to say on abortion. I really don't think the Constitution has 
has anything to say about whether or not the state can impose a permit on, on people who want to carry their guns openly. Obviously, accusations of hypocrisy can often fly in both directions and judicial activism is always called whenever um, you know you don't agree with the decision. But uh, it is just really, really striking in my case how you can 200 years after the fact basically invent new rights out of a, what I think is a fairly limited amendment. Charlotte, it's not the first time we've talked about this subject. And the longer this goes on and the more reporting we do, the more data we have, the less hopeful we feel. How do you avoid just succumbing to an overwhelming feeling of helplessness on this? I think, sadly, that there are a few areas in American life where it seems like the political system is just completely and totally incapable of dealing with it in a sensible manner. Gun control is one of them. Climate change, for now at least, is another I'm a bit more optimistic on climate action versus gun control. But I also think that you do see little by little changes in the way that people talk about gun control. I think that, you know, many people have been sharing this clip of this Golden State Warriors coach, Steve Kerr, who who spoke with emotion and outrage after the shooting. I think the degree to which you can continue to have more public discourse on this, both calling for action and the specific analysis of, of what actions might help. I mean, what else can you do, right? I mean, there's there's not much that you can do, but try to have sensible discourse that's based in grounded policy for how to limit this type of violence and then hope that matters progress and in the meantime, hold your children close. Yeah, hold your children close. And bear in mind that the longer this problem is left unsolved, I think the worse it gets. Something like 40 million guns were sold in America in 2020 and 2021. So every day that goes past, there are more guns in circulation. The problem gets harder to fix. And though I share Idris and Charlotte's rather downbeat assessment, I've been reading a book recently about the anti-slavery movement in America before the Civil War, so in the 1830s and 1840s. And a lot of it is about very persistent campaigners like William Lloyd Garrison and the Tappan brothers. And if you were involved in that policy struggle then, really for 50 years, you would have concluded that it was completely hopeless and there was no progress possible. And yet, eventually, America's political system did the right thing. Let's hope that next time we're together, we're talking about a happier subject. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. Remember, if you're not yet a subscriber, you'll find the best deal at economist.com slash podcast offer. You can read all of Alexandra's reporting in full there. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.